don't know if you picked up the story this week about the happenings at Jesus College in Cambridge. But if you did, you will have learned that uh, of the story of a group of students led by the master, whose name is Sunita Alain. She was born in Barbados, grew up in East London, and is now master of the college, the college's first black master. She applied to the Diocese of Ely, um, which is the diocese that oversees the area of Cambridge, to remove a memorial statue to Tobias Rustet, a well-known slave trader who was a benefactor of the college and presumably particularly of the chapel area. The diocese uh, looked at this, the case and came to the conclusion that it wasn't necessary, it was not necessary to remove the statue. Now, evidently, this decision caused upset and consternation among many at the college, including, and especially perhaps, the master herself, Sunita Alain, who said, and I quote, there is such a thing as racial dignity in worship. That's a thing that has been ignored. The Church of England sits at the heart of the Anglican communion across the world. The average Anglican is a 30-year-old African woman. What are we really saying with this judgment? Powerful words. If you didn't catch that story, you may have seen Prince William this week and his remarks on this very issue. He expressed, quote, profound sorrow and said that, quote, slavery was abhorrent and that, quote, again, the appalling atrocity of slavery forever stains our history. Do right. Now, some imagine that the secular world, by which I mean the, the post-Christian world, the world in which all of us now live, has no concept of sin. But in the matter of slavery, and in other matters too, but specifically I think we see this in the matter of slavery, we see that it is clear that this is not the case. We know as we look at this issue, both in terms of historic slavery and in the slavery that still occurs in the world today, do we not, that the world is full of evil, violence, inequality, and injustice. We see it on our television screens each evening if we have them turned onto the news. We have a strong sense, actually, in the secular world for the reality of sin, at least of a structural or systemic sin. I think things are slightly quieter when it comes to the personal sin. But in structural sin, we are very aware in our post-Christian secular age. The secular world recognizes the reality of sin and also recognizes that anyone who's been touched by it has in some way been stained by sin. In fact, that's the language that Prince William himself uses. And at this point, we are, we're in good Christian theological grounds. This is good Christian theology. However, when it comes to the origin of sin and also the question of how we deal with sin, what we're to do about sin. This is when things start to unravel. How can we atone for the misdeeds of the past? Something has to be done. And we know, don't we, that even if the removal of a statue is necessary, it is not 
sufficient. It is not enough to atone. Generally speaking, humankind has come up with two solutions to the problem of evil and sin. The first is irreligion. Irreligion is grace without holiness. Irreligion says, there's nothing that needs to be done. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Irreligion gives license when what is needed is justice. Irreligion says we're not accountable to anyone or anything. On the other hand, we have religion. And if you're in the room, you've probably tried a dose or two of religion in your time. It is very popular in places like churches and mosques and synagogues and also, as I will declare, university campuses. Religion is holiness without grace. Religion says, be better, do better, try harder. One of my favorites, try harder. Yeah, it really is. Religion takes sin seriously in one sense. It says something is wrong, but it sees the solution for the wrongness at the heart of reality in the hands of humans. We can do it if we just do it better. And it leads to a life of exhaustion. If you're exhausted in your Christian faith, it's likely you've spilled over into religion. It leads to judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and ultimately destruction. Religion is the reason most people don't want to try Christianity, because they confuse the two. Cancel culture, which I'm not going to explain, I'm just going to say, if you understand what that phrase means, is the most obvious form of religion in our society. It is the religious attempt to do away with in human judgment, anything that we don't like. Now, neither one of these two approaches to the problem of evil and sin works. And so the question is, we come today to Mark 10, and our series on the cross is, what can be done to deal with the problem of evil and sin in the world? To the great weight of sin that manifests itself in our culture as racial injustice, as violence, as neglect, as gossip, as slander, as abuse, as greed, and yes, as sexual immorality and the like. The Christian faith declares plainly that we cannot escape from the reality of all of that through irreligion, nor through religion. We need, instead, rescue. We need to be rescued. We need atonement. And it is here that Christians look to the cross of Jesus Christ as the place, the locus, the home of atonement, of at one And it's for that reason that we're looking at the cross, this Lent together, this place where justice and mercy meet. And last week we looked at the cross and we saw it as the place where Jesus wins for us liberation from enslavement. We saw how he leads his people in a new and greater exodus, not from the tyranny of Egypt and enslavement there, but from the tyranny of sin, death, and evil, that most unholy trinity. And today we're looking at a different way of understanding the cross. And it is that way that we come across in Mark 10. Now I said to you that Mark 10 was one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. And I did not lie. 
And the reason I like it so much is because of how stupid the disciples are. James and John display evidence of discipling stupidity par excellence. And their particular brand of stupidity is my very favorite brand of stupidity. Because it's the kind that I myself like to exhibit most days. You know the story, how Jesus, as I read, gives his, and I thank Mark for this, third passion prediction, the third time in quick succession that he declares to his disciples, he's going to the cross. How many of you know that when your parent repeats something, they mean it for emphasis? And when they do it three times, they really, really really mean it, right? Jesus does this because he really, really, really means he's going to the cross. And then the next thing that we read in verse 35 is this, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, teacher, and in parentheses, perhaps it says, interesting the stuff you were saying about crucifixion, can we have a conversation about something slightly different? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Blank check, Jesus, is this a good time? Post of crucifixion uh, prediction number three is it a good time to talk about who's on the right, who's on the left in your kingdom? Is this a good time to talk about power after you've just talked about crucifixion? That's kind of what's going on. I mean, it's so hard-headed. It's hilarious. Mark, when he was compiling this and retelling this story, this gospel, he must have chuckled. And if you don't get the humor, <laughs> it's miserable in a, in a sense, but if you don't get it, you're not reading it right. There probably isn't a single church leader who hasn't at some point imagined that the power that comes from proximity to Jesus, from things like dog collars and pulpits and a variety of other things, websites and the things, shouldn't be or couldn't be or might not be employed to bolster their own position. It is a fundamental issue in all leadership, but we see it in Christian leadership time and again. Might this power, Jesus, make me look good? It would be nice if it did, Jesus, because I like looking good. <laughs> right? We all feel that. I went through most of my 20s thinking that there would come a time when I would stand on stages across the world and people would listen to me preach and tell me how wonderful I was. And instead, Jesus gave me four children under the age of four, <laughs> two of whom were twins. <laughs> And it was like you were saying, Johnny, that's interesting, that vision you've got. We're going in a different direction, me and you. <laughs> How many of us have known, though, leaders who use their power to build their own kingdom? Who use their power to invade sovereign nations? Or to work their way into the right relational circles? Or onto a New York Times bestsellers list? Naming no names. Or into a vulnerable woman's bedroom. If you think anyone leading you, or indeed you yourself are invulnerable to that kind of thing, you are deceived. You're as deceived as James and John. Why? Sin. Sin. Mark did it two weeks ago, but we're doing it again. A double dose of sin for your Sunday morning. Sin is the reason that every person has the propensity, in fact, they are hardwired to misuse power. 
It's not just leaders. Every person can and will at some point do it. Every human person is as liable to using someone else or something else for their own advancement, even if it means trampling on that next person. Paul says it in Romans, there is none who is righteous. No, not one. And that's why a recognition of the reality and the depth and the gravity of sin is one of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in revival. We know he's near when we start to be convicted of the weight of sin. You know, honestly, let me level with you. Most of us, myself included, live in complete denial about the reality and the gravity of sin's operation in our lives. And we look out there to other people people whose statues are on walls of chapels and we say the problem's out there and we fail to see the gravity and the reality of the problem in here. And that's how sin gets you. That's how it gets leaders. James and John show us that being around Jesus, being on platforms is no insulation against the power of sin. And so Jesus just flips it. He begins to try and help them understand what's really happening. And here's what he says. Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? The baptism he's talking about there is the baptism of his death. And and the cup he talks about them drinking is the cup of God's wrath that he will drink on behalf of all people. And I I might be wrong here, but I've always read this uh, as if Jesus is expecting the answer no. No. They're supposed to come and say, no, actually, we can't. There's something you're doing on our behalf that we can't do. And I think it's a manifestation of sin that they misunderstand. And they come up with the answer, yes, that's a good idea. Is that the way in? Is that the way to the right and the left? Okay, let's do that. If that's, if that's the doorway, well, fantastic. Yes, we can. Do you see how sin damages the perpetrator? It dehumanizes them. It creates just a a bubble of unreality. James and John just caught up in this sin of hubris, of pride. Here they are completely caught in it and they can't even see what Jesus is trying to ask them because they're in this bubble of self-importance. They begin to live in a delusion. How many times do we see this with our leaders? Political leaders, church leaders, any leaders? The delusion that comes around leadership. And and, and leaders become surrounded by sycophants. People only tell them they're doing the right thing all the time. And they become distanced from reality, from real people. And so James and John, this happens with them. In their minds, they're capable of giving and doing the same things as Jesus. They have a Messiah complex. And Jesus is just here to just poke at that balloon and deflate it a little bit. In fact, completely. Leadership issues, by the way, and this isn't actually a message on leadership, it's a message on the atonement, we will get there. But it is interesting, leadership issues begin here. They begin with just a divorce from reality, which which is around hubris, it's around sin. So James and John want to be on the right and the left. That's their paradigm, that's their interest. They want to be on the right and the left of Jesus at his coronation. When you come in your glory, can we sit on the right and the left? And in their minds, that looks like right and left of his throne when he walks into Jerusalem, which is where he's going. 
What they fail to see, because they, like us, are blinded by their own sinful ambition, is that those who flank Jesus at his coronation are on crosses of their own. The only way to be certain of being alongside Jesus as he is crowned is to climb onto your cross. Now the disciples, the remaining disciples, it would be fair to say, are not best pleased. Here's what we read. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant at James and John. And I like to think they're indignant because they didn't come up with the idea first. That word indignance, it's a composite of two words, agan meaning much and akthos meaning grief. They're they're literally deeply grieved. Here we see uh, the the impact of sin, not just on the perpetrators, we've seen that with James and John, but on on the victims. There's a deep grief. Why is there grief? There's grief because the community, which at this point had been a community of unity around Jesus, a one community, is torn apart. These ties of kinship are broken. Sin tears at the fabric of humanity. It ruins relationship. It breaks trust. Tears communities apart. And we see this in the community of faith among the disciples, just as we do in Jesus College and in our own families and across our city. And so Jesus jumps in here to correct both groups. Both Both groups fail to see the reality of what he's doing in and through his life and in fact his death. And it says this, he called them together. He called them together, verse 42, and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become a great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. This is the key word I want to home in on for the rest of our time. A ransom for many. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is lutron. It speaks of a price being paid. And so kidnap is in view or or some kind of captivity like that. And the ransom payment is the amount of money it takes to bring about the release from captivity, from kidnap, from some kind of enslavement. So it's really closely related to what we talked about last week with deliverance. It's concept of redemption. Now, in the early church, uh, this is a really popular motif, a really popular way of looking at the cross. Uh, and lots of different sort of um, theologies were built ab- around it, and they were very literal. Uh, and one, one idea was the idea that the payment was made to the devil. That fell out of favor. As the consensus grew that the devil actually didn't need paying, and certainly not with the blood of the Son of God. But nonetheless, even if we refute that particular way of understanding this theology, it is such a powerful way of looking at the cross. That what happens on the cross is that Jesus pays the price for me to be released from captivity. This way of understanding the cross sees the cross as the price paid for my liberation. Last week our liberation came through sacrifice. The blood of the lamb on the doorposts uh, over which the angel of death passes over. This time it comes through the payment of a debt. 
And the point that's implicit in all of this is that a debt is owed. We're all indebted. We all owe a debt. Our sin is a very serious issue. It has weight. It has substance. It's not just out there. It's in here. And it's over us. And it holds us in captivity. And unless we're delivered, literally redeemed, there's no hope for us. No hope. Ransom or redemption then is about deliverance at cost. A deliverance at cost. A costly deliverance. And because the debt was so great, the price that was paid had to be even greater still. That is what takes place on the cross. That is why Paul says twice in quick succession in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Your lives, if you're followers of Jesus, are now owned. You're under ownership. You're a slave to Christ, and your slavery to Christ is freedom, and it comes about through the price paid for you. This is ransom theology. It is the theology of the New Testament. We see it all over the place. We see it in 1 Peter. I've already read that. won't read it again. We see it also in 2 Timothy. Here we read, for there is one God... There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a lutron, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Last week, John spoke, didn't he, about Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. Some of you weren't here, but you know her story, probably. The lady who went to visit her mother in Iran and was imprisoned on the sort of False tale of being a British spy. Imprisoned for six years. Five successive foreign secretaries failed. Probably didn't try. Perhaps as hard as they might have. To get her out of slavery. We talked about that as a powerful image of deliverance. About um, a new exodus. And indeed it is. But it almost works even better this week. Because what was it that got her out of that kidnap. Of that enslavement. What was it that did it? Well it was the payment of a debt. The debt was 400 million pounds that I think was initially owed for some tanks or something. A lutron needed to be paid. But the difference between Nazanin and, and, and us is actually stark. It's a good illustration, but the difference is profound. Firstly, the debt that Nazanin that needed to be paid, the, the ransom that needed to be paid didn't properly belong to her. The debt wasn't hers, it was a nation who she vaguely represented. But each of us is fully and equally responsible for the weight of sin. There is none, says Paul again, repeating it for the second time, because it's important. Who is righteous? There is none who is righteous, no, not one. No human stands before the throne of a perfect and holy God uncondemned. And if you think you're righteous in your own strength, folks, wake up and smell the roses or the daffodils on this Mothering Sunday. You are in denial, as the psychologists would say. Not a river in Egypt. A state of being, a state of mind. The point is, the debt is ours and ours alone. We owe it. We owe it. We owe it, but we cannot pay it. Now, I don't know how how wealthy Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe was. Probably not wealthy enough to pay 400 million pounds. 
But it is possible to imagine a nation state raising the money to pay that off. And indeed, this nation state did. But the point with the debt of sin is that it is unquantifiable. How do you quantify the the weight of sin that tears apart not just part of the world, but the whole world? The weight of sin which we see day in and day out in our city in the form of child abuse and neglect. How do you put a price on that? What price could possibly be paid? The debt we owe is too great. It is not quantifiable. And so Fleming Rutledge says, the human predicament is so dire that it cannot be remedied in any ordinary way. If we fail to see this, then we've not truly considered the weight of sin. Or as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 49, truly no man, no person can ransom himself or give to God the price of his life. See, the debt of sin is so great that we could not pay it. Only God could pay it. Only God has the resource. Only God has the kind of bank account capable of paying the debt. And so Anselm of Canterbury said this. The debt, but the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay, that is man, and could not, should be in a person who could. God becomes man so that man who owes the debt and should pay it can pay it. In the person of his son, Jesus. If you didn't catch that, you'll get this. The words of there is a green hill far away. There was no other good enough to pay the price for sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. God in Christ Jesus does justice for us. He is both the one who pays the debt and the payment itself. The cost was the blood of the perfect Son of God. Jesus himself is the price of our redemption. What an unbelievable Savior who comes to redeem us, to rescue us from sin and the causes and the impacts of sin in our lives. It's extraordinary. Comes to liberate us from however you conceive sin, whether as a power under which we are enslaved Or is a series of acts that make us guilty before God. On both counts, Jesus is the ransom. But there's one more difference before I close that I want to paint out between the Zagari Ratcliffe story and our own. And it has to do with those who benefit from the ransom. Now in the story of Nazanin, there are a number of people who benefit Chiefly of, of course, Nazanin herself. But we also see her husband Richard who fought on her behalf for many years. Hunger strikes and various other things. He benefits hugely. So does their daughter. I think her name was Gabriella. She too benefits. She receives her mother back. What an extraordinary thing. We, I think we can all say as a nation, have benefited to some degree from this happening before our eyes. 
But the benefits aren't unlimited. They are finite. But with the ransom Jesus pays, there is no limit to who it can be applied to. The, the cost is infinite. It's the blood of the eternal and infinite, the valuable son of God. And so the blessings too are infinite. There's no limit, on to, there's no limit to whose account that can be counted against. No limit whatsoever. It's an extraordinary thing. The payments of an infinite value because it's the blood of God's own son. And so it has the capacity, the capability of including within itself every person, past, present, and future. And so Jesus says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for who? For many. Not just for the few. Not just for the religious folks. God, thank you, not just for the religious, those boring, boring religious folks who want to just trample on all our fun. But not just, also for the licentious irreligious who think there are no consequences in a world, who don't see the wreckage that their irreligion causes. He comes for the religious. He comes for the religious as well. He comes for the victims. And he also comes for the perpetrators. He comes for Sunita Elaine. And he comes for Tobias Rustat. He comes for the enslaved. And he comes for the slave trader. And his blood is enough to sanctify and to redeem and to buy back every life because he is the son of God. He comes for you. He comes for me. He comes for the city that you are sitting in. Is there any person in this city too far from him that his blood cannot be an appropriate ransom? There is none. He comes for the Russians. He comes for the Ukrainians. He comes to anyone and for anyone who would come to him in humility asking for his blood to be counted as righteousness for them. He comes to pay the debt of any and of every person, man, woman, child. Because in Jesus we see no human martyr. We see the life of the triune God himself making payment on our behalf. And for us, this cannot lead to anything but tremendous sense of relief and gratitude and worship. And so today we come in thanksgiving as we celebrate the memorial of the ransom he paid in communion. Let's begin by taking a moment to confess our sins together.